Today's scripture reading is in Hebrews 12, 12 through 17. Therefore, lift up your drooping hands and strengthen your weak knees and make straight paths for your feet so that what is lame may not be put out of joint, but rather be healed. Strive for peace with everyone and for the holiness without which no one will see the Lord. See to it that no one fails to obtain the grace of God, that no root of bitterness springs up and causes trouble, and by it many have become defiled. That no one is sexually immoral or unholy like Esau, who sold his birthright for a single meal. For you know that afterwards, when he desired to inherit the blessing, he was rejected. For he found no chance to repent so he sought it with tears. May God be glorified in the reading of his word and all God's people said, amen. Today, we are continuing our series, Christ Supreme in All Things, and we're getting near the end of this book. And if you're a visitor with us today, just so you know, we're working verse by verse through Hebrews. And we've been doing this for about a year. And we come to a section of Hebrews where things get super practical. The author of Hebrews is all up in your business in this section, expecting us to change our lives and to live differently in light of his word. And one of the things that's emphasized throughout chapter 12 is this idea of running the, the race of the Christian life. And what we need as we're running this race is perseverance. We need endurance. Christianity is not a flash in the pan. Our lives are not lived like, like a sprint, getting to the end as fast as we can. No, this is a marathon. There, there's a, a labor associated with the Christian walk that requires perseverance. But here's another thing that's required as we follow Christ. The Christian life also requires holiness. We see that emphasis here. The title of today's message is Holy Perseverance. Just turn to your neighbor right now and tell them, Holy Perseverance. You need that. Tell your neighbor that. They need it. And what I want to do in the next few minutes is I want to convince you as a follower of Jesus that you need this and that you want it. Holy perseverance. And I'll tell you, right now in today's world, that's a hard sell. Holiness. I mean, in our world today, you turn to somebody in our world and say holy and they, they scoff at you. I mean, they sing songs in our world today about being unholy, not holy. That's a, that's a tough thing for our world and perseverance I mean, if I said the word perseverance to our world today, people would turn to one another and they yawn. They're bored at the idea of perseverance. They say to one another, let's live in the now. Let's change and adapt if we have to. Nothing lasts forever. So the fact that I'm, I'm up here preaching this morning a passage from the Bible that emphasizes both holiness and perseverance, that's a tough task. Pray for your pastor. But listen, if I could bottle up holy perseverance and give it to all of you, I would. If there were vitamin supplements called holy perseverance, I'd take them. Because we need this, because this is so central to the Christian life and the Christian mission of living for Christ as a disciple. You can't be a growing disciple of Jesus Christ without a growing pursuit of holiness. Amen. The Bible says, 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 16, Be holy because I am holy. You're not saved by your holiness, but saved people pursue holiness. And you can't be a disciple of Jesus Christ without perseverance. Oftentimes those things go together. So you have holiness and you have perseverance. You have perseverance and you have holiness. And those go together in the community of faith. So let's talk holy perseverance today, church. Write this down as number one of, in your notes. I'll give you three statements today from this passage. And by the way, I'm going to frame these in the context of the Christian community. Intrinsic to what's being said in this passage 
is the idea that you are leveraging the power of the church as you pursue these things. So we are the church. And this is what we're going after together. So number one, as members of Christ's community, God calls us to, first of all, respond to his discipline with perseverance. Respond to his discipline with perseverance. Last week's message was about discipline. Remember that? And, you know, I, I told you that God's children, like, like your children as parents, they respond to discipline wrongly in two ways. Sometimes they, they are defiant and sometimes they deflate. And both of those are wrong. In fact, the author said, you know, don't regard lightly. You know, don't be defiant towards God's discipline, but, but don't be discouraged by it either. Don't, don't be defiant, don't deflate, but here's what you do instead as God disciplines you. Look at verse 12. Therefore, lift your drooping hands and strengthen your weak knees. Actually, let me get a running start at this in verse, in verse 11 to just remind you of what we said last week. And there's that therefore in verse 12. We need to understand what that therefore is therefore. So verse 11, for the moment, all discipline seems painful rather than pleasant. True but later it yields the peaceful fruit of righteousness to those who have been trained by it. Sign me up for that. I want that. Therefore, in light of God's discipline, he says, lift your drooping hands, strengthen your weak knees. When God's discipline comes, you don't bow up in defiance. You, you buck up, you stiffen your backbone. And you get back to the race. When God's discipline comes, you don't bow out with a deflated spirit. Instead, you gird up your loins. You, you strengthen your drooping hands and your weak knees. You don't bow up or bow out. You buck up and you gird up your loins. And you get back in the race. I'm so glad the author of Hebrews brought back this runner's analogy because I love sports illustrations. And I, I'm glad that the Bible uses them. And this is a great one, this description of, of the runner that started all the way in verse 1 of chapter 12 with this, this runner's talk. Therefore, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, Hebrews 11, let us also lay aside every weight and sin which clings so closely and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us. Now the author brings that running analogy back. And he admits that the race is hard. And he admits that the race is gonna test your resolve. And the important part of the, the race isn't just the start. I know the start is wonderful and it's amazing. All the people gathered at the, the starting line, the gun goes off, there's a lot of excitement. But the important part of the race isn't just the start, it's the finish. So we need to respond to God's discipline with perseverance. God takes us through a trial in our lives. God takes us through some hardships and we need to lift up our drooping hands and strengthen our weak knees. Now listen, here, I'm not a runner, okay? So I didn't really understand this analogy until I did a little bit of research. But supposedly the first thing that starts to go as you're running a marathon is your hands. And, and you, you know, you, your hands are very important as you're running because your hands actually dictate that you have the right gait. They keep your legs in the right places as you're running. But that's also the first thing to droop when you start to, to get tired. And the second thing to go is your knees. Your, your knees stiffen up. Your knees start to wobble. And in the Christian life, you know, sometimes your gait gets thrown off. Sometimes you're, you start to wobble and life gets wobbly and life gets wonky. And, and you got to get things back in order. And it's tough. I'll just tell you, you know, you can have an A-plus Christianity. You can, you can have an A-plus disposition towards the Lord. You go through a tragedy or a crisis, that A-plus goes to a C-minus real fast. And that'll throw you off. And what the author of Hebrews is saying here is in the midst of that trial, what do you do in that situation? You persevere. You fix your eyes on Jesus and you continue the race. But also look at verse 13. Here's another thing that we do as we're running. 
Make straight paths for your feet so that what is lame may not be put out of joint, but rather be healed. What does that mean? Well, that's, look, this is an allusion to what Solomon says in the book of Proverbs. Solomon writes, ponder the path of your feet, then all your ways will be sure. Do not swerve to the right or to the left. Turn your foot away from evil. In other words, stay focused on the Lord and the path that God has mapped out for you. Don't chase sin. Don't veer off course. Fix your eyes on Jesus, the founder and perfecter of your faith, and keep running. Don't let your feet stumble over something dangerous like sexual immorality. We'll get to that in just a moment. You know, in the ancient world, they weren't as concerned with the health of athletes as they are in our modern day world. So, you know, they weren't as conscientious about clearing paths for runners. So if you're a marathoner and you're out there running, you got to watch your route. You got to avoid rocks and divots and uneven ground. And if you're, if you're running in a place like Athens or Rome, you know, those, those roads and those cities could be treacherous. And if your knees are weak, and if your hands are drooping, you're, you're going to be more susceptible to injury. So you got you to gotta focus and keep your path straight. And, and part of this, too, wrapped up in this analogy, is you don't just run harder, you run smarter. It's, it's not just about, you know, gumption. It's also about discernment, about wisdom. You, you, you can't just be determined. You have to race smart. So perseverance, I think that's wrapped up in that, that word, that important word, perseverance. Not just the idea that we run hard, but we run smart. That, that in the Christian life, we're not just chasing after the Lord with all of our might, but we're, we're growing and we're maturing, and we're renewing our mind, and we're learning how to run better the race. Paul talks about this in Romans 12. It says, do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind, that by, test, that by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. So run harder, but run smarter in terms of your Christian race. Here's something else that the Christian race is about. Write this down as number two. So as members of Christ's community, God calls us to respond to his discipline and perseverance. He also calls us to pursue harmony and holiness with diligence. With diligence. Look at verse 14 with me. Strive for peace with everyone. I like how Forrest emphasized that. Strive and for holiness without which no one will see the Lord. The word strive is this Greek word on the screen, dioko. And it's an imperative in Greek, meaning it's a command. He's commanding us to do this, and it's an aggressive word. Work at this. Strive for this in your Christian life. The author of Hebrews is commanding us, strive for peace with everyone. With everyone, Pastor Tony? Everyone? I mean, I didn't say it. The Bible's saying it here. Yes, with everyone. Strive for peace with everyone. Even that guy at work who hates me? Yes. Even that atheist who trolls me on Facebook? Yes. Even my ex-husband? Even my in-laws, Pastor Tony? Yes. Strive for peace with everyone. Paul says out. In Romans 12, if possible, so far as it depends on you, live peaceably with all. And we know that it doesn't always depend upon us, but to the extent that it does depend on you, live peaceably. Paul also said in Romans, let us pursue what makes for peace and for mutual upbuilding within the church. He told us to be eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. Ephesians 4.3. Jesus said, blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called the sons of God. The author of Hebrews says here to strive for that, strive for peace with everyone, strive for harmony both inside and outside of the church. By the way, I feel the need to clarify this. Jesus said, blessed are the peacemakers. Being a peacemaker is not the same as being a peacekeeper. There's a difference between those 
and the way in which we apply that. So sometimes, sometimes peace requires hard conversations with people. Being a peacemaker doesn't mean that you're a doormat and you let people walk all over you. Jesus didn't live his life like that. There are times when we've got to have a hard conversation in order to be a peacemaker. And there's another thing that peacemaking requires in our world. It's something precious, and we've got a corner on it as Christians. It's something called forgiveness. If you're going to be a peacemaker, if you're going to seek peace and strive for peace with everybody, you better learn how to forgive. And Jesus has forgiven us much, hasn't he? So it should be easier for us than for other people. And let me just touch on this too. You know, you got to know your own personality in this as it relates to being a peacemaker. Now, some people are, are fight people and some people are flight people, right? When there's a conflict. And, you know, sometimes those of you who have a fight tendency... You got to learn to pick your battles and you got to be quick to forgive. Now, some of y'all who have a flight tendency, you got to learn to stand your ground and be forthright and sometimes have that uncomfortable conversation for the sake of peace. If you want more on this, you can read the book called The Peacemaker by Ken Sandy. He walks through that and you got to know your temperament. You got to know which way you gravitate in order to be obedient to what the Bible calls us to hear. So the author says, do this, church. Strive for peace with everyone. And as part of this striving, the, also, the author also says, strive for holiness. So not just harmony, but also holiness. Strive for peace with everyone and strive for the holiness without which no one will see the Lord. That's a, that's a shocking statement right there. Without holiness, no one will see the Lord. And that's... It's sobering, but it's also a helpful statement because it helps us understand that 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 guy who says he's a Christian who's more wicked today than he was 10 years ago, he's not going to see the Lord. Inevitably, as you are filled with the Holy Spirit, you're going to start to, listen, the third person of the Trinity, what's his name? Y'all know who that is, right? Can I emphasize the holy statement about the Holy Spirit? The point of that is, is that when you get saved, the Holy Spirit indwells you and the Holy Spirit doesn't indwell you without making some changes in there in your life, without changing you. And that's going to be a gradual thing. Not perfectly. I know. I mean, we're all works in progress here and we're not as holy as we need to be. But the point is that as the Holy Spirit comes, he's going to start to change. He's going to start to convict. He's going to start to force you to start being more like Jesus. And that's a good thing. Praise God for the indwelling Holy Spirit. And he's producing these things inside of us that we can't produce in ourselves. Now that, listen, that doesn't absolve us of what's being said here of the command. The author of Hebrews says here, strive for holiness. And he means it. Strive for this. Strive for, for this pursuit. And the power of the Holy Spirit inside of you is accessible to help you do that. So strive for peace and strive for holiness. And by the way, the starting point for all of this is salvation. You're not saved by your holiness. You're not saved by being a peacemaker, but you're saved in order to be holy. And, if you, and to be a peacemaker. And look, If you don't have peace with Christ, you can't be a broker of peace for the world. You you don't, this this world knows all about war and contentiousness and and lack of forgiveness. That's because they don't know the Lord. That's because they don't know Christ. That's because they haven't been forgiven much. You, on the other hand, church, you've been forgiven much. So you have the power, unlike those who don't have the Holy Spirit, to offer peace and pursue peace. You have the resources that Christ has given you to do that. Also with holiness. You can't pursue holiness until you have your sins permanently forgiven. 
And if you haven't done that, you need to do that today. You need to put your faith in the finished work of Jesus Christ, the Holy One who can do something that you can't do, who was perfectly holy from start to finish. That's the starting point in all of this. And if you're here, if you're new with us today, I mean, we're in Hebrews 12. You just need to know we worked through 11 chapters already. And, and one of the arguments of the author of Hebrews throughout this book in chapters 1 through 10 is Jesus is awesome. Get on Jesus' page. Put your faith in him. You can't do Hebrews 12 until you embrace the Jesus of Hebrews 1 through 10. But once you do that, that's when, I'll just tell you, that's when Christianity gets fun. When, when you start to live a life as a peacemaker and you start to exhibit a holiness that you couldn't apart from Christ. And you're like, Lord, how did I get here? How, do, how are you doing this in me? It's so sweet. But it has to start with faith in the finished work of Jesus. Right? Amen. Let me take a breath and drink some water here. <laughs> All that singing today it got, got me fired up. Write this down as number three in your notes. So as members of Christ's community, God calls us to respond to his discipline with perseverance, to pursue harmony and holiness with diligence. Here's the third thing. We're to stave off sin in the community of faith with vigilance. You know, Anthony Colston was hammering away at this yesterday, and I was so thankful for that at our men's event just talking about the nature of the Christian community and how God has given us, he was actually talking about the priesthood of all believers, where God has given us this church, this community to, to pursue these things together. And, and I'll just tell you that intrinsic to this passage itself is this idea of community, of the church. Okay, God has given us these wonderful gifts, church. He's given us his Holy Spirit. How good is that? He's given us his holy word to study so that we might obey him. Can I tell you something else he's given us? God has given us each other. God has given us the family of God, the church, to help us in these pursuits. And we need each other. Right? Y'all ever heard that ditty before? To be above with the saints we love, oh, twill be a glory. To be below with the saints we know, well, that's a different story. <laughs> what a cynical, cynical way to think about the church. I love y'all when we get to heaven, but not now. No, God has given us the church. God has given us this community. And we can leverage that as we, we stave off sin in the community of faith with vigilance. Look at verse 15 with me. See to it that no one, fall, no one fails to obtain the grace of God. Just a note of Bene here, just in terms of Greek, verse 15 is not a separate sentence. This is actually an outworking of verse 14. So the idea here, you might say it this way, verse 14, strive for peace and holiness by seeing to it that no one fails to obtain the grace of God. You got it? That's the flow there. So the, the big command here is to strive, strive. And as part of that striving, we're seeing to it, there's three things mentioned here in verses 15 and 16. See to it that no one fails to obtain the grace of God, that no root of bitterness springs up and causes trouble, and by it many become defiled, and that no one is sexually immoral or unholy like Esau, who sold his birthright for a single meal. So just to be clear here, here's the flow of thought with this. The way that we pursue holiness is by seeing to it that no one fails in these areas. Failing to obtain God's grace, failing to remove a root of bitterness, and failing to curb sinful appetites. Let me give you three terms for these. I'll call these the three enemies of holy per perseverance. We're, we're pursuing holy perseverance together. Here's what we've got to combat as we do that. Apathy, acrimony, and appetites. And notice the communal way in which the author communicates these directives. This is 
You know, this racing analogy, you got to be careful with that because this is not one man racing in a race all by himself, you know, with his headphones in, doing his own thing on an island. No, this is a, this is a, a communal race. This is racing as a community. And, and that's framed here in the way that he says, see to it that no one fails to obtain the grace of God. In other words, see to it that nobody within the family of God, within the community of faith, see to it that no one fails to obtain the grace of God. One author I read this last week called this section, this entire section from verse 12 through 17, he called it how to cultivate endurance through Christian community. In other words, how, to, how do you leverage the Christian community of faith in order to endure and to persevere? See to it that no one fails to obtain the grace of God. Now that, just a few more exegetical details here. That verb, see to it, is this Greek word, episkopeo. And it's a cognate word with the Greek word, episkopos, which for those of you who are knowledgeable, you know that episkopos is the word that's used of a bishop or an overseer, the, the elders within the church. So using that verb here, there's a sense in which the author is telling us that all of us have an episkopos function within the church. We're all overseeing each other and watching out for each other, watching out for it. What are we, what are we guarding against as a church? Three things. Here's the first, apathy. We're watching out for apathy. We're watching out for people who are failing to obtain God's grace. And we don't let apathy sit in. We don't let complacency sit, sit in. We see to it that no one is apathetic or lethargic or pessimistic. How does somebody fail to obtain the grace of God? Pastor Tony, how does that happen? Okay, listen, let me be clear about this. This is not a reference to saving faith. So this is not talking about make sure that somebody gets saved. Okay, this is... Look, this might surprise y'all, but y'all get saved by grace. But can I add to that, that you also grow in grace as a believer. And you also finish in grace. Just for proof of that, 2 Peter 3, Peter says that we grow in the grace and the knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. The Apostle James says that God gives us more grace as we need it. Even earlier in the book of Hebrews, in chapter 4, verse 16, the author says, let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace to help us in our time of need. So we are saved by grace. We grow in grace and we finish in grace. There's an ongoing need for God's grace. Tell me if y'all have ever heard this before. Y'all heard this? Through many dangers, toils, and snares, I have already come. Tis grace hath brought me safe this far, and grace will lead me home. John Newton, amazing grace. So one of the community tasks that we have as the church is directing people constantly towards the grace of God, helping people see the grace of God, encouraging people with the grace of God. And I'll just, here are two things that you can do applicationally to help in this way. You can direct people to God's grace, and then you can serve as an instrument of God's grace. How do you direct people to God's grace? Well, you remind people about the gospel. You remind them about their eternal hope, especially in the midst of suffering, especially in the midst of a trial. People need to hear that. They need to be encouraged by Romans 8, 28. All things work for the good of those who love God and are called according to his purpose. People need daily reminders of that. I need to be reminded of that. So you can remind people of God's grace. You can direct them to God's grace. You know what else you can do to help people to obtain God's grace? You can serve as an instrument of God's grace. Sometimes that means just sitting with them. Sometimes that means encouraging them and not saying anything. It just means weeping with those who weep. And you don't tell them Romans 8, 28 until they're ready to hear it. Sometimes that means bringing a meal to somebody who just had an extended hospital stay, stay and, and being that instrument of grace to somebody who needs it. Or it means praying over somebody who went through something tragic. It's not for an accident that at the end of our service, we have people up here who are 
ready to pray for you because I don't know what's going on in everybody's life in this church. Some of you may have a deep need that you just need somebody to pray over you. And in that way, we want to serve as an instrument of grace for you. Sometimes being an instrument of grace means watching someone's kid when they need a day off. Sometimes it means paying to send a struggling Christian couple to a retreat for counseling. I mean, the possibilities are endless for this. Steering people towards grace. See to it that no one fails to obtain the grace of God. Over, in other words, oversee one another, church. Love one another. Care for one another. Be on guard against apathy in the fellowship. Here's another enemy of holy perseverance. There's apathy and there's also acrimony. See to it that no one fails to obtain the grace of God and see to it that no root of bitterness springs up and causes trouble and by it many become defiled. Here's another overseeing function within the church. We have a role in this to deal with the root of bitterness in our community. And I know a lot, a lot of times, even in counseling sessions, people will use this verse and this phraseology to talk about the root of bitterness inside of our heart. You've got to deal with the root of bitterness inside of your heart. And that's true, for sure, that, that bitterness can get inside of our heart, and that's the antithesis of forgiveness. But that's not really what this author is talking about. He's not talking about the root of bitterness in your heart. He's talking about somebody within the church that can be the embodiment of a root of bitterness. And the reason I know that is because he's quoting, he's alluding to a passage from the Old Testament in the book of Deuteronomy. And in that passage, Moses tells the people of God the following. Y'all can read this on the screen. Now keep in mind, this is Moses the people are about to go into the promised land and he's given them some final instruction and Moses takes the most of his opportunity to preach to them and to counsel them and to advise them. And part of this has to do with a root of bitterness inside of the camp. And he says, you know how we lived in the land of Egypt and how we came through the midst of the nation through which you passed. And you have seen their detestable things, their idols of wood and stone, of silver and gold, which were among them. Beware, lest there be among you a man or woman or clan or tribe whose heart is turning away today from the Lord our God to go and serve the gods of those nations. Beware, lest there be among you a root bearing poisonous and bitter fruit. One who, when he hears the words of this sworn covenant, blesses himself in his heart, saying, I shall be safe, though I walk in the stubbornness of my own heart. This will lead to the sweeping away of moist and dry alike. The Lord will not be willing to forgive him, but rather the anger of the Lord and his jealousy will smoke against that man, and the curses written in the book will settle upon him, and the Lord will blot out his name from under heaven. Woo! I mean, that's serious. Moses, telling the people to watch out for this root of bitterness. Remember, they, they just spent 40 years wandering in the wilderness because of stubborn heartedness in their midst. And he's saying, don't let that stubborn heartedness emerge again within the community. Deal with sin in the camp. And this metaphor, this root of bitterness, it's illustrative because when you cook up a meal, let's say you cook up a pot of stew, right? It's incumbent upon the cook to make sure that that stew is seasoned with good vegetables and good herbs. Nobody wants bland stew, okay? But an inexperienced cook who doesn't know their horticulture may toss in a bitter root and will spoil the entire batch of stew, right? And the idea here, actually in the King James, the word that's used in that passage in Deuteronomy and also in Hebrews is this word wormwood, which is, and this is this weed in the Latin, it's called Artemisia absinthinium. And it, you know, it, it could ruin your stew. It could also ruin your crop. And if you throw this poisonous weed into your stew, not only 
would it make everything bitter, but it's, it's such that if you take too much of it, you can actually, it can be lethal. In our modern day, we use this for, for medicine and stuff like that, wormwood. But in the ancient world, wormwood was proverbial for messing up meals and messing up crops. And here's the idea here. The idea here is that it only takes one bad apple to ruin the whole bunch. It only takes one poisonous person in the community of faith to drag everybody else down. So Moses tells Joshua and the rest of the Israelites, remove the stubborn-hearted person from your ranks. Now, let's fast forward to the New Testament. What's the author of Hebrews doing with that? Why is he using that, that image? Well, he's saying here, verse 15, see to it, church community, that there's not a root of bitterness in your midst, in the church that springs up and causes trouble, and by it many become defiled. Some within the church that he's writing to must have been causing trouble. They, they were acrimonious towards the Lord. They were acrimonious towards the other brothers and sisters in Christ. And their, their bitterness was starting to spread. It was spreading like gangrene. Remember Paul's comment in 2 Timothy 2? Avoid irreverent babble, for it will lead people into more and more ungodliness. And their talk will spread like gangrene. Among them are Hymenaeus and Philetus who have swerved from the truth. Look, this is hard, but this is something we have to be engaged in. As Christians, as members of the body of Christ, we have an overseeing duty. We're here to watch out for apathy. For those who are weak-hearted, we need to encourage them. For those who are stubborn-hearted, we need to rebuke them. And we're called to protect the spiritual health of the church. Yes, your elders are tasked with that ultimately. We'll do our part. We're tasked with overseeing and shepherding and caring for the sheep and protecting the purity of the church. 1 Timothy 3, 1 Peter 5. But all of us have a role in this. We all have a role in this. And finally, one of our communal efforts of the body of Christ is to battle collectively against appetites as well. Apathy, acrimony, appetites. And the example that the author of Hebrews gives for this from the Old Testament, Old Testament is this infamous son of Isaac, brother of Jacob, a man named Esau. So back to verse 15. See to it that no one fails to obtain the grace of God, see to it that no root of bitterness springs up and causes trouble, and see to it that no one is sexually immoral or unholy like Esau who sold his birthright for a single meal. For you know that afterward when he desired to inherit the blessing, he was rejected for he was found, for he found no chance to repent though he sought it with tears." This word for sexually immoral here is the Greek word pornos. Our English word pornography is derived from this word, and it's a word, pornos, that has a wide semantic range, incorporating a, num a number of different kinds of sexual sin. Paul uses a similar word in 1 Thessalonians 4, verse 3, when he says, This is the will of God, your sanctification, that you abstain from sexual immorality. What's God's will for my life, Pastor Tony? What's his will for me? I, I don't know. But I know this. He doesn't want you to be sexually immoral. This is God's will. Sanctification. Now, the example of this from the Old Testament is Esau. We had 16 plus people in Hebrews 11 that were to emulate in terms of their faith. There's one person in Hebrews 12 that were told, don't be like this guy from the Old Testament. And his name is Esau. Esau, unlike his brother Jacob, he went and he took two Hittite women to be his wives. And even though Moses doesn't say that this was sinful or immoral, he doesn't say that explicitly, it's a logical inference from the text. The Bible, look, let's be clear about this. The Bible doesn't condemn cross-cultural marriages or relationships. The Bible does condemn cross-religious marriages and relationships. To marry somebody who worships another God, that God does not abide by, Old Testament or New Testament. And that's what Esau was guilty of. 
Esau's sin in this matter is indicated by what is said about his parents. This is Genesis 26, 34 on the, tech, on the screen. When Esau was 40 years old, he took Judith, the daughter of Beri, the Hittite, to be his wife, and Basemath, the daughter of Elon, the Hittite, and they made life bitter for his parents, Isaac and Rebekah. So the author of Hebrews is leveraging this Esau example to exhort the church body to see to it that there's no sexual immorality in the church, that, that there's no sin in the camp. You know, the Apostle Paul in 1 Corinthians, he wanted somebody kicked out of the church for their sexual sin. This is a real deal. God wants us to protect the purity of the church. And let me say this about sexual immorality and sexual sin, okay? Here's the attitude of all of us in this room right now. All of us should be saying, there but by the grace of God go I. No, nobody should be getting all high and mighty about this. Charles Spurgeon said once about sexual immorality and, and the temptation there. This is, this is a courageous statement from a pastor. He said, the first person who is likely to fail in this church is myself. I'm as likely as anyone, he says, to fail in the area of sexual immorality. Each one ought to feel that. Each man himself is most in danger. If you say, I do not think so, then there's the more reason that you should think so. If upon hearing of anyone falling into sin, you have said, I do not understand it. I know I never should have done so. It is very likely you will before long fall into the same or an equally vile sin. You are just the man. The one who thinks that he stands must watch out lest he fall. So we need to deal with sexual immorality in the church, and we need to be on guard ourselves because we all have that propensity. But it wasn't just a sexual appetite that Esau was guilty of. He also sold his birthright for a single meal. If you read, it's interesting, if you read the Hebrew of, of Genesis with the account of Esau, you know, Esau, when he's talking with his brother Jacob, he, he sounds like a caveman. Give me some of that red, red stew. You know, he, just, he sounds like a, like a meathead. Like all he cares about is food and satisfying his desires. And he's willing in that moment to trade this precious thing that God had given him for stew, for, for a meal. And, and it's shocking. And it's as if the author of Hebrews is saying, you know what, you first century Jewish Christians, you're about to do the same thing. You want to insult somebody in the first century, a Jewish Christian? Compare them to Esau. Because they're, they're the sons and daughters of Jacob, man, the 12 tribes of Jacob. Esau was the bad brother. And now he's saying, you're being like Esau. You're trading the gift of the new covenant of Jesus Christ so that you can go back to Judaism? You're, you're about to make a huge mistake. And he's warning them. And notice in verse 17 how the, how the warning intensifies. For you know that afterward, this guy Esau, when he desired to inherit the blessing, he was rejected. For he found no chance to repent though he sought it with tears. Yeah, Esau felt bad after he had done what he did. Yeah, he regretted his, his rash and oafish actions. But his remorse was not remorse leading to repentance. You know, Jacob did some dopey things too in his life. He made some horrible decisions. But his repentance was genuine repentance. And the Lord signified that by changing his name from Jacob to, East, to uh, Israel. Esau, on the other hand, here, this is Esau. Paul says in 2 Corinthians chapter 7 that there is godly sorrow and there's worldly sorrow. There's godly grief and there's worldly grief. For godly grief produces a repentance that leads to salvation without regret, whereas worldly grief produces death. Let me say it this way. There's godly grief and then there's Esau grief. He felt bad, he rejected this blessing, 
He wanted to be restored. He even sought it with tears, but he found no chance to repent. So one last time, here are the three enemies of holy perseverance. And look, church, we're in this together. Just look around the room a little bit. God has brought this church together, verse by verse, and these folks to battle against these things together. To battle against apathy. To battle against acrimony. To battle against God-defying and self-gratifying appetites. Let me ask you, church, Who is it in your life right now who's asking the hard questions about these things? That's checking on you. Who's watching your six as it relates to apathy and acrimony and appetites? Don't miss out on the opportunity to leverage the power of the church. God has given us this gift He's given us the one another in this room to help battle these things. This is a team race running in the Christian life. Look, I have some friends, I'll just tell you, I have some friends that love to run. And they love Hebrews 12. They love this analogy. Runners, we're, you know, can I... Pastoral confession time. Can I just tell you, I hate to run. Running, running is the worst. I like watching the Olympics because I like watching other people run. I had this friend who's, she's gone home to be with the Lord, but she used to love to run all the time. And she got mad at me once because I was talking about running and how it's just like pure torture. And I, I told her, you know, that whole runner's high thing that runners talk about? I told her, that's a myth. <laughs> said, runner, I've never had a runner's high. Now, runner's low, I've had that lots of times. <laughs> when I was a kid, especially, I didn't like running because it, it felt so isolated. I didn't, I didn't like individual sports. I didn't like swimming. I didn't like tennis. I like team sports. I wanted to play basketball. I wanted to play football. I wanted to play baseball. I wanted to play those sports where you're, you're working with other people and there's camaraderie and there's teamwork and you're... Listen, here's why I love Hebrews 12, even this runner's analogy. Because as, as the author of Hebrews is unpacking this, this, this running, He's not talking about each of us running some race of the Christian life in isolation. This, this is a team sport that he's describing here. We're running together. And we're actually helping one another along the way. As somebody falls down, let's pick them up. Let's keep running. And I love that. Let me say it this way. Holy perseverance. Remember that thing I talked about at the beginning? Holy perseverance is a team sport, church. We're running after that together. We're in this race, this Christian race together. Let's press on with holy perseverance. Pray with me. Lord, I want to say thank you for your good gifts. Thank you for the Holy Spirit that indwells us and produces in something in us that we can't produce on our own. Thank you, Lord, for your holy word. Thy word is a light unto my path. 
shows us the way to go. It shows us how to honor you, serve you, live for you, Lord. And I want to say thank you, Lord, for the good gift of your church. And Lord, by that, I don't mean the church universal spread out around the world and throughout church history. I'm thankful for that too, but I'm especially thankful for verse-by-verse fellowship in San Antonio, Texas. Thank you for this church. Thank you for these brothers and sisters in Christ that are running this race with me. Lord, help us, strengthen us. Allow us, Lord, by your grace to help one another, to oversee, Lord, this race, the Christian life is hard, it's challenging, there's obstacles. The world is against us. But you're with us, Lord, and you're helping us. God, if there's any person in this room right now, anybody listening online who's discouraged, has weak knees and drooping hands. God, would you strengthen them right now? Lord, if there's somebody in our fellowship who's struggling with with unforgiveness, with bitterness, with sexual immorality, God, by the Holy Spirit's power, would you bring conviction that leads to healing and changes? Spirit is so good, Lord, it doesn't condemn us. But it does convict. It does press us to alter our course. Jesus.